Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to SFF Addicts, a bi-weekly panel podcast featuring writers from fanfiaddict.com, authors, publishing professionals, bloggers, and more, where we come together to chat about science fiction and fantasy, as well as the occasional jaunt into the wider SFF industry. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and today's episode is my interview with author Alison Stein. She's the Philip K. Dick award-winning author of Road Out of Winter and Trashlands, the latter of which was released today and is available now to purchase. She was raised in rural Ohio, has worked as a freelance reporter with the New York Times, and also writes for the Washington Post, The Atlantic, 100 Days in Appalachia, and more. We had a great conversation, and during our chat, Allison and I delved into her journey as a writer, the origins of her novels, climate change and how it plays into her fiction, parenting, characters and community, trash, tattooing, and much, much more. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and thank you again to Allison for taking the time. All right, now on to my interview with Allison Stein. Here we go. Welcome, everybody, to another author chat on the podcast. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Allison Stein. Uh, she's the Philip K. Dick award winning author of Road Out of Winter, as well as three poetry collections and a novella. She was raised in rural Ohio, a setting that has come up frequently in her fiction, including her newest novel, Trashlands, which was released today. Glad to be chatting with you, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, happy to. First off, congratulations on the release of Trashlands and happy book birthday. Thank you. I hope I get a cake later. (laughs) I mean, hopefully. Um, A a trash cake. It's been a long journey. I'm I'm excited. I'm nervous too. Uh, This book is different than my last one. Um, I think, I don't know. I think I have more at stake with it. I think I'm more vulnerable. Um, It's certainly bigger, as you know. There's a bigger cast of characters. So, I guess I have more to lose, but you know, if you don't have a lot to lose, then why write at all, right? Exactly. And yeah. how are you doing just uh, life in general? How is everything? We're good. We're hanging in there, you know. Um, I didn't expect to have my second book come out during a pandemic. <laughs> have both my novels be pandemic novels <laughs> has been an experience, but you know, um, we're getting the hang of things and I've done a lot of virtual events and virtual cocktail hours and book clubs and um, you know, there's some some good things about that too, and I'm enjoying that. Yeah, I mean there's the there's still the possibility to promote a book and, and put out a book during a pandemic, you know, yeah. I'm pretty amazed at the, at the publishing industry in general, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm amazed that, you know, my books came in the mail and they came on time and <laughs> I did have one box of books that wasn't my book. It was somebody else's book. Um, but I told my editor and, you know, they figured it out. So those things do happen, but yeah, the publishing machine is still running for better or worse. And you just, you just casually kept a copy of that book. <laughs> <laughs> she told me to just keep them. <laughs> So I think, I think the, I think the little free libraries in my neighborhood are going to get a big shipment of this book. I think so. Oh, perfect. Very nice of you. And, um, just to sort of get started, um, could you introduce yourself a little bit, um, and then dig into your reading history, sort of how you got into science fiction or fantasy or just literature as a whole? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Allison Stein, and I'm uh, primarily a fiction writer and a journalist, um, but I have uh, published in lots of different genres over the years, including poetry, like you said. Um, I actually started as a playwright when I was young. Um, I was very shy due to the fact that I'm partially deaf. I was born that way, and my parents thought I should do theater, that that would make me less shy. And I was still shy, but I did a lot of plays. And so I started writing plays and then poetry. And I always wanted to write fiction, but I just, I never had a fiction teacher. Um, the college I went to, they didn't have a fiction writer on staff. So it was just kind of like this private thing that I did for me. And I wasn't able to get a, a, a novel out until last year. My first novel, Road Out of Winter. And then my second novel, Trashlands, has come out today. Congratulations. Thank you. And what about your what about your reading history? Um what were some of the books that were you know a bit um more in your formative years, those books that really stuck with you? Yeah, well, I grew up in rural Ohio like you said. Um I come from a farming family. Both sides of my families are farmers. Um, my parents were the first to go to college in the family and the only uh, before me. And so reading was really important to my family, but maybe not, you know, literary books or even sci-fi. Um, my grandmother and aunts would read romance novels, <laughs> Harlequin romance novels. And my grandfather would read uh, cowboy books. He really liked genre books. So there were lots of books around. Um, but when I was growing up, we didn't have Amazon. We didn't have Barnes and Noble. You know, there was like kind of a bookstore in the mall, but really small and it would close, you know? So I read a lot of uh, classics first because that's what I could find at the bookstore, like George Eliot and Emily Dickinson and Edna St. Vincent Millay. And I didn't know that you could be a writer and be alive until I was a teenager because I'd never read any live writers. You know, I really didn't know you could do that. Um, and so, uh, books like, you know, Anne of Green Gables were important to me and, you know, some of those, I guess, more like traditional girlhood books, I guess. Shout out um, to Prince Edward Island. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to go there someday. <laughs> I probably of, romanticized it, but you know. Very much. It's a lot of potatoes and a long bridge. So. Hey, well, I love potatoes. So <laughs> I don't know about the bridge part, but I'm down with the potato part for sure. Um, and then I, you know, I, I didn't study uh, fiction. Like I said, I studied poetry and nonfiction in school. So I always kind of snuck fiction books on the side. And I think the first um, speculative novelist I fell in love with was Angela Carter. And I read oh, everything nice. that she had published, even the maybe not the great stuff. You know, I just read it all. And then I was just really hungry for more books like that. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, um, my first introduction to Angela Carter was in university uh, with Bloody Chambers. Yeah, yeah, that and was my that first was like, too. Holy shit! Yeah, I, like, I didn't know you could say that. Like, I want to say that. Yeah. I want to get away That's with amazing. this stuff. So that was exciting. Well, speaking speaking of that, I mean, now you're getting away with whatever you want to say, um, to a certain extent. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> but how did you how did you end up becoming a writer? Um, you you mentioned that you're a journalist. Um, I, I imagine you probably went into journalism first while writing fiction privately. How did that all unfold? Well, actually, my career path has been just kind of like a weird uh, jumble lines, you know, all these lines crossing, um, like a little scribbled child's painting, I think. Um, 
I started out wanting or trying to be an academic. You know, I went to grad school. I got a PhD. I, I have taught at the college level, but never a permanent job. I could never get a tenure track job. And um, when I was working on my PhD, I got pregnant and my first marriage ended. My husband left when I had this new baby and I had to finish my degree and I had to get a job. You know, I couldn't get a teaching job. I tried and I didn't get one. And so I was like, I need to make money fast. What can I do? at home, you know, what, what can I always do? And I was like, I can write, I can always write. And so even though I did not go to school for journalism, I started doing journalism because, you know, I could do it from home. I could do it with a new baby. I could write quickly. Um, that's one of the skills that I've always had is I, I can write fast if I have to, you know, I can generate new ideas fast. And then I began to realize that I really love journalism. I love learning new things. I love meeting people and hearing their stories and, and trying to do the best job I can for them, especially if it's an issue that I really care about, like the environment or people living in poverty, you know? And so it, it really... I came to journalism out of desperation, but I really do have a home here and I love it. And you're right. You know, I always wrote fiction on the side. Um, I started publishing poetry pretty young, but fiction was, you know, I still don't have very many short stories published. It's very difficult to get a story published. And it's not like a poem where, you know, you got a whole bunch and you can send them out. You know, I would spend years on this one story and I just kept getting rejected. Um, so I have written multiple novels over the years and kind of tried to get an agent and it didn't work and they didn't send it out. I tried again. It didn't work. It didn't work. But just um, when I started writing Road Out of Winter, it just felt different from the very beginning. And I felt like this was the one that was that was going to make it through. And, and it did somehow. What, what, what was different about Road Out of Winter in particular? Um, I don't know. I just felt really compelled. I felt like urgent. Like I had to get this story down, you know, and the other novels I had tried to write, I felt like I really want to write a novel. I'm going to do, I just want to do this. Okay. I'm just going to get through this. But this, you know, Road Out of Winter really felt like this is the story that has to be told, you know, and if I don't tell it, somebody else will. So I better catch it fast. You know, I better be here for the story. I'm I'm curious what what are some of those earlier if you feel like divulging it's totally okay if you don't want to what were some of those earlier stories like those early works that you that you wrote and what was what was I guess what didn't click in your head with those particular ones in comparison to Road Out of Winter I don't think that I was being my true self with those books. I think I was holding back. Um, I tended not to hold back in poems so much, but I think a large part of that was because, well, nobody reads my poems. You know, my mom and dad are not going to read my poems, you know. Um, and so I felt like I could be a little bit more free because it has such a limited audience. And there's always the possibility with books, but maybe especially with fiction and nonfiction that, that some people are going to read it. Maybe, you know, my mom has actually read my fiction and my dad. Um, and so I was afraid. I was afraid that people would be mad at me. I was afraid that they would think I was weird or I was too dark, you know, or too strange. And I just wasn't giving it my all. And I guess I just got so tired of rejection so tired of writing and writing and not having it work out that I, with Road Out of Winter, I was just like, I'm just going to go for it, you know, because what do I have to lose? I've already lost so much. I'm just going to just give it everything I have and we'll see what happens. And I think it really shows in that book, to be honest, because 
Oh, thank um, you. You're welcome. I I came across your work just going through uh, Wikipedia and looking at uh, all the Philip K. Dick is a huge idol of mine. Mm. As as fucked up of a human being as as he was, um, I I went through all the different uh, years of of nominees and winners for the Philip K. Dick Award, and I just came across yours, which won last year. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Cool, sounds awesome." Um, I actually read it in the middle of of I guess you could call it Quito summer, where it's very hot and very dry. Yeah. So it's kind of this like, "Cool, I want to read a book about winter because I know winter. I grew up in Canada, and I just want to like immerse myself in the cold and just kind of feel that, you know." And so I came across your book, and it was perfect timing, and it feels very intimate and honest and and that was something that stood out to me about that book and i was curious like how did you how did you sort of like approach that particular narrative in terms of like the fears that are presented and and um what the characters go through and um the relationships that they that they have and sort of develop over the course of the novel well i had had i mean um I actually stopped writing the novel uh, during the first draft because um, in my head, I don't want to spoil the the book for people that haven't read it, but in my head, it was like a cross-country book. Like They were going to go across America. They were going to go from Appalachia to California. And I was on page like 150 and they were still in West Virginia. So I was like, I'm, this, this is not it. And I gave up the book and I stopped writing it. And then I went back to it a few months later and I reread it and I thought, oh, they don't get to California. That's the story. You know, they never get to California. And so then I think that allowed me to make it make it more concentrated and even more intense when I knew it wasn't going to be this sprawling road trip book, but it was going to be like a, a really a small, intense book. Um, and really, I mean, you know, there's some wild things that happened in the book, as you know, there's the main character is a marijuana farmer. There's a skateboarding cult, you know, various things like that happen. <laughs> but it's just really a story in three acts. You know, this this young woman leaves home. Uh, she meets a bad man and the bad man doesn't want to let her leave. You know, it's really just kind of three simple actions. And once I realized that, I was able to kind of compress it, I think, and, and make it have that intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that compression really stands out during the whole novel. In terms of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the the pacing, um, the the language and dialogue and stuff like that, and we'll get into that later. Um, in terms of your your writing technique and all that, but first I wanted to jump into um, climate change and how that became such an important aspect of your of your fiction writing. Well, it wasn't um, necessarily intentional. I mean, I I think I definitely ascribe to Dolly Parton's um, view, which is find out who you are and then do it on purpose, you know? And I didn't do it on purpose at first, but now I have doing it on purpose. Um, But, you know, I I was living in Ohio, and I don't know if you know much about that part of America, but... um, you know, we can have some some pretty bad weather, but especially where I lived in southeastern Ohio, it's nice. It's it's more southern. We have a long growing season, you know. Um, but one year, like it was May and it was still snowing. And I just had this thought, like, what if spring never comes back? And then I started thinking about this book. 
And when I was writing the book, I did worry that someone might think I was a climate change denier, you know, because it's about <laughs> winter in the book. It's not global warming. But of course, now we know it's really just chaotic weather, which can mean bad snow too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think um, recently uh, we did a, a panel on climate change and climate fiction. And something that came up is just sort of like the erratic differences that different parts of the world feel in terms of the impacts of climate change. You know, uh, a, an extended winter, winter that essentially skips spring until, until May is just this strange um, manipulation of, of, the, of the world and the weather system based on all the crap that we're putting into it, you know? Or like the increase in hurricane, hurricanes in the, um, in the Atlantic and the Caribbean and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I thought it was really interesting the way that you uh, approached it and wrote out of winter. And I wanted to ask you specifically why you wanted to leave um, sort of like the, the cause of it or, or the implications of that, why you wanted to leave that more ambiguous. Well, I, um, I, I, I don't really plan my books. I'm more of like a pantser <laughs> where I just like go, you know, once I have enough, I just go. And the reason is because I don't want to get bored. I, I like surprise above all else as a reader and a writer and a consumer of movies, everything I like surprise. So I want to be surprised, but it just, it felt like to me, and I'm a big horror movie fan as well. And one of the things that frustrates me about some horror movies, and I will watch the trashiest horror movie. You should ask my partner. I watch some real trash, but I don't like it when they explain everything. You know, it just, the monster isn't scary once you've seen it. Um, once you know exactly why something is happening, it doesn't have that kind of tension with it. And so I wanted to keep that tension of not knowing what's going on and how scary that is. Um, but I also realized that the drama is really with the people, you know, it's really these interpersonal relationships and the people that they meet, even though the world is kind of falling apart. Um, but the real drama is still within, I think. Yeah, and humans, regardless of the situation, have the ability to become, I wouldn't necessarily say saints, but they have, they have the ability to display kindness, but they also have the ability to display monstrousness, you know? Yeah, and an extreme situation like that, like we found with the pandemic, you know, can really reveal what someone is like. Yeah, and, and after you published uh, Road Out of Winter, how did you how did you feel about the whole publishing process and then leading into Trashlands how did you feel writing your first published sequel did you feel like any any pressure or anything like that um well you know i had published a few books before I wrote out of winter but you know like you said they were poetry and they were novella and it was different you know this is my first like traditional big three novel thing. And it's a whole other beast. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know that I wouldn't have say over some things like the title. A Road Out of Winter was called The Grower at first. Um, <laughs> or the cover. I mean, I love the cover, but you know, I didn't really get final say. Or the back cover or how it's marketed. You know, all that stuff is out of your control. 
And I didn't know that. And I didn't know things like, um, I didn't know all the different stages of revision. You know, I didn't know I'd get content edits and then line edits and then proofreading and then copy editing. It just keeps coming. Um, (laughs) So it was really a process of discovery for me. It was a real learning experience, that one. And with this one, I mean, maybe part of the reason I'm so nervous about it is because I do know what's coming. You know, I do know what it's like. Um, But it is hard because it's a a very different book, too. You know, Road Out of Winter is really one woman's story. And Trashlands is really the story of a community. It's a bigger book. It's sprawling. um, It alternates perspective, which I know some people don't like or it can be confusing. Um, But it's really the junkyard story, you know, not just one person's story. And so it's very different. Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue. How how did you decide and why did you decide to focus on on trash as your sort of framework for Trashlands? Well, I started writing Trashlands because um, uh, I'm a single mom, I have a young son, and I don't get a lot of time away from him. And any of the times, just a few weeks out of the year that he's with family, I always try to go somewhere and write the whole time, you know, just as much as I can and really use that time. And so when I can afford to, I'll spend a night in a hotel or something. Um, And I had actually rented an old school bus that had been turned into a very rustic Airbnb. Didn't have indoor plumbing. It didn't have a shower. You know? <laughs> it's probably kind of dangerous now that I think about it. But um, it was an old school bus. And that first night that I slept there, I couldn't sleep. And I dreamed this story of this woman named Trashlands, who was a mother. And she had become a mother very young. But I knew she wanted to be an artist. And I knew she kind of she had a partner who was a tattoo artist, and then I knew she had met someone new in her life too. And so from the very beginning, there was the bus. You know, I knew there was going to be a bus. And then I thought, what kind of people would live in a bus all the time? And what's next to the bus? Well, what if it's a junkyard? You know, what kind of people would live in a junkyard and why? And then it just spiraled out from there. That's so fascinating. I think that's really cool. Also, good on you for actually taking the bold step of, of, renting an airbnb in a bus and i recommend it it was good (laughs) it worked out i mean i've slept in some weird places but i can imagine a bus ends up um converting rather nicely into Mm -hmm. into a little portable portable home kind of thing but um i wanted to ask you what um in regards to everything about Trashlands, what storytelling benefits did garbage offer you and the characters and the story that you wanted to tell Well, it was a lot. I mean, you know, it's a junkyard and so there's a lot of stuff. And so stuff was a big part of the book. Um, The book is set like a generation or two in the future and, and climate change floods have kind of rewritten the world, you know. And one of the things that's left after the flood is plastic, you know. So it offered so much opportunities not only for description, but also for danger, uh, the pollution, the toxic chemicals of this, um, but also for creativity and sustainability. And, you know, how do you keep going um, when all you have is plastic? Uh, what do you eat? How do you make furniture? You know, how do you get around? Um, and so sort of every level of building the society, I was kind of thinking about junk and trash and plastic. Yeah. And I think you, you approached it like you just said, from so many different angles that it really comes out in the book and the fact that you have multiple point of view characters 
Each of them, I think, has a different approach to not only life, but also plastic and uh, the junkyard and and the world that they inhabit. And so for you, how did you um, come about developing those characters? Um, what was the sort of journey in, in creating all of the different denizens in this little trash land community? Well, at first, I just wanted to do what I did with Road Out of Winter again. I wanted to have a main character. I think I wrote it from the first person at first, um, from Coral's point of view, who's a young woman. And then I just realized that, you know, just like the layers of the junkyard, you know, the story here has layers. And it's not just, even though it's important, it's not just the story of this woman and how she became a parent and lost her child and how she wanted to be an artist but wasn't able to, you know. It was also the story of how do you rebuild after disaster? And I realized that that would have different points of view, you know, because that's different for, you know, a 30-year-old and a 14-year-old and an elderly person. You know, there's a couple elderly characters in the book. And it's also different for men than it might be for women and for straight characters versus queer characters. And so I really wanted to show what this rebuilt world might be like, but from different points of view, too. Um, and, and you're and- right, they all view plastic differently, too. Mm-hmm. And regarding their their names, um, each of the different uh, characters has a name that that sort of stems from something that was lost. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the living memory of of the earth that was. You know, there's coral, um, trillium, Mister Fall, Foxglove, which is a it's a type of flower, correct? Right. And mm-hmm. then uh, Tahiti, which obviously became inundated with with rising sea levels Mm. or same with shanghai all these different characters what did you want to evoke with with those names and then how did it sort of develop on its own in your opinion well i exactly like you said you know i wanted to evoke something that was lost um in this world there isn't the internet per se um there isn't a lot of electricity that's not solar generated. Um, there isn't phones, you know? Um, so, you know, you don't have phones, you don't have TV. How would you remember things? How would you think about things? There's not even a lot of books in the book, which is part of it too. (laughs) And so one of the things I thought was, well, a name passed down to children, you know, um, name your grandchildren, what you remember, you know, so it's not lost forever. So even if you lose the meaning, you would at least still have the name. You know the name uh, Maple and B and Joshua Tree. Yeah, that actually all of this all of this talk about names it, it makes me uh, remember. I don't know if you've ever read Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series. Yes. Mm-hmm. How how naming is so is so important, and how a name can carry a lot of weight, and it can carry memory and identity and all these different things, which is the reason in that series that that a name is so powerful that you don't share it with anybody unless you truly trust them, you know? Right. And I thought your approach to names was also, obviously it's, it's very different, but I think you, you took the significance of a name and gave it a lot of meaning within the context of this story um, in terms of like the world that you built and everything that surrounds these people. So Yeah. And it, it was funny. Um, you know, when you're writing and you're getting really into a character, at, at first a name is just like you got to call them something, but then they really become their name if it's the right name, you know? And I was surprised, like, um, 
the character of Mr. Fall is in love with a dancer named Summer, you know, and the character of B is kind of annoying and buzzes around, you know, and it was surprise, surprising to me how they really grew into that, grew into their names. Yeah, I think it's really, um, it's really nice when, when a character's name just fits their personality. And each of the different characters, there's, you know, Coral, who's, um, you know, she's got the shock of bright red hair and everything like that. Um, and, and like Coral, she's very like actual physical Coral Reefs. She's very uh, vibrant in terms of like her outer appearance. She's different and she stands out. But beneath that, there's so much uh, complex interiority in terms of her personality, in terms of her relationships, in terms of her artwork and things like that. And um, there are actually two specific character questions that I wanted to ask you. First about Coral. Um, how did how did art become sort of uh um a hobby for her and a representation uh for her as a character that's a good question um it it just kind of came with her like i knew her name was coral i knew she was a young mom i knew she had red hair and i knew she was an artist but i knew that it was more than that like the art was complicated and it was difficult you know, in a world where plastic is so prevalent that it's money, art really wouldn't be valued, you know, in a junkyard, art wouldn't be valued. So how could she be an artist in that situation? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of street art and graffiti art and junk artists. And I thought, well, what if she just took plastic and made art out of it? And what if her life is such that not only does she not get paid for it, but people don't know that she does it. You know, she makes these weird sculptures and she leaves them in the woods. She leaves them in trees. They're anonymous, you know, that means the art is not just about money for her. It's about doing something creative and doing something with her life. That's not about her partner, her son, or just making money or surviving, you know, it's about making beauty in the world. And so, you know, as part of the book, I had to learn a lot about plastic and I had to think about plastic and what plastic pieces might make an interesting sculpture together and how could you attach them and, you know, what what can be recycled and what can't be. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that and, and what kind of things she would make and how long they would last or be taken apart. I think that's really fascinating because it's like, um, I guess understanding that in a world of plastic it's this funny thing i i actually um released uh my i published my review of the book um earlier this month and one of the things that i that i brought up was this notion of how trash and plastic and these things often outlive the people that that made them or consumed them and discarded them and i think it's really beautiful that coral in a world of of this plastic permanence she's creating beauty out of something that's impermanent such as a sculpture that someone could just come across in the woods and easily kick over or something like that um and then conversely you have trillium who's the other character um that really spoke to me because i used to be a tattoo artist uh before the pandemic and i think you did a very good job of um I mean, hygiene standards aside of tattooing on a, on a dirty <laughs> bus in a trash, <laughs> in a, in a junkyard. Um, I think you did a very good job of representing the sort of tattoo artist mindset in terms of it's very 
a lot of the times it's very DIY. Um, the history of tattoo comes into play in terms of um, people who made their own ink. You know, they were gathering different materials. You know, um, I've talked to tattoo artists when I was in tattooing in Berlin. Um, people that I've met here in Ecuador, and a lot of them, it's like, oh yeah, the older generation. It's kind of been lost because of um, the mass market consumerism of the tattoo industry. But a lot of them, they no, it's like, oh, this is my personal recipe for tattoo ink. You know, it's like charcoal with like a little bit of like alcohol and that kind of thing. And, oh, I made my needles by hand. And I'm just thinking like, holy shit, that's incredible. You know? And then Trillium as a character, he's, he's someone who's doing art for, for money as a job in order to survive in this world. But at the same time, he has kind of this like, um, reclamation of lost knowledge that he's sort of piecing together in terms of uh designs and art uh how to make ink how to make needles all this different kind of stuff so how did you how did you i mean i imagine you probably did a bit of research in terms of figuring out how you wanted to portray him but how did you go about this this character of trillium as a tattoo artist i i liked the idea of Coral being an artist who's partnered with another artist, but that they do different things. And, and they're probably from different generations. They don't really know how old they are in the book, but he does, he's older than her. They do know that, you know? Um, and so they do have like things that separate them and that create distance between them. Um, and so I was thinking about, you know, what kind of art would last, what kind of art would be valuable in this world. And like you said, you know, maybe he could make money off of it. He does. That's one of the ways they survive is he tattoos, you know? And that also creates tension in the book because he's got to keep moving for various reasons. One is the things that happen to him. He doesn't feel safe staying in one place for long. But another reason is because he's got to find new people to tattoo, you know? He's tattooed a lot of people already in the junkyard. He's got to move on. Um, Originally, I had him, he had some kind of I don't know what I was trying to invent, but like this elaborate, like tattooing gun that involved like a sewing machine and stuff and like a pedal. And I was trying to make it work. And then I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't, I don't think this is going to work. I think he needs to just be like a stick and poke tattoo artist. Just go back, you know? And I did a lot of research on that. And, um, and also, you know, thinking about the inks and how he would make that with what he has and what's available to him. Uh, my son is is little, you know, but he is an artist. He's very much into art and he's also really into rocks. And so he tries to combine his two interests. He's always like trying to make paint, you know, and crushing rocks and things like that. So I think I put a little bit of him in this older character too. That's cute. I mean, it's like, um, like your son's pigment experiments being translated into this character. Yeah. And I think it was a very, very good call to go stick and poke because I, I will say there's um, there's just like, it's underestimated how much is uh, required in order to use a tattoo machine in terms of maintenance, in terms of uh, materials and all that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of my friends who are stick and poke artists, one of the things that for them was so convenient was the actual uh reduction of materials and so it was a lot easier for them i mean you describe trillium in sort of like this nomadic way and i think that's perfect because a lot of tattoo artists are nomadic 
Um, they like to go to new cities. They like to go to new places and meet new yeah. uh, sort of like skin markets, let's say. Um, you know, the fresh meat that's out there who's just waiting to be tattooed. Um, and the fact that he does stick and poke, it's like, cool, you can just travel around. I think there's one scene in the book where they go out of the trash, uh, the trash lands in the junkyard, and he quickly gathers up some of his materials in order to go right. there. And I think yeah. that was that was perfect because it's like, if you're a tattoo artist in this environment, if you're living in a junkyard or if you're traveling on a bus in this wasteland, that it's really important to be able to pack light, you know? And I think you see that in some of the other characters too. Everybody has this uh, mentality of um, use what you need, share what you don't. Um, and I really loved your approach to community in the book. Um, if you could sort of elaborate on that and, and what the community in Trashlands is like, but also what it meant for you to go from Road Out of Winter into Trashlands and still make this an intimate story, but a community story. Well, um, you know, Road Out of Winter is so much about kind of like looking for a community and looking for a place to belong. And the main characters kind of go through trying out different communities and they don't work for various reasons and they all have their problems. And, you know, just like we talked about in any sort of like high stakes uh, dystopian or dramatic story, like people end up being the drama, you know, the good and the bad. Um, so it was really about find, trying to find a place to belong. And Trashlands is kind of the opposite. Um, Trashlands starts, the main character has a place she belongs. You know, she has family, um, adoptive family. She wasn't born there, but they took her in. Um, she has a partner. She's love. She has work. She has a safe place. You know, she has a, a place here. She's friends, community. But that may not last forever. You know, things happen and you, sometimes you have to make a change and you have to leave your community. So it's kind of about um, a community that does work uh, despite the drama of the situation. It's certainly not perfect. I mean, um, Trashlands takes its title from a strip club at the end of the world that's the center of this junkyard. And the strip club and the junkyard is, is run by a man who has um, a lot of rules and, um, you know, is a little bit frightening in various parts of the book. And so it's not a perfect place. It's not a perfect community. But multiple people have still managed to to find not only a living there, but a life, you know, and find love and companionship and they help each other a lot. They give to each other. Um, the community in that sense is, is really based on my own community in Appalachian, Ohio. Um, you know, very poor kind of remote area, but sometimes poor people give the most. And it's really about that in Trashlands too. Yeah. I think that that aspect stands out a lot, you know, as horrible as some of the as as some of the characters are um i mean the this sort of undignified master of the trashlands actually has master right. in his name yeah um but i think despite the fact that in the center of this community is something as as distasteful as a strip club um there's so much like you say so much love and so much sharing and so much compassion and optimism at the same time. I think a lot of the people, despite being lost and in the midst of this uh, disastrous climate future, 
still have managed to find the ability to muster some optimism within themselves. Um, and I wanted to ask you what, um, cause this also appeared in road out of winter, how optimism plays into your, into your stories and how you evoke that through your characters. Well, I think you have to have hope. And I think that, um, you know, even though this is set in a future where the world has really been rewritten by climate change and, I mean, I thought it was pretty out there, but, you know, since it's come out, a lot of people have said to me, this seems realistic. Like, this seems like where we're headed, actually. Um, but even despite that, you know, there's still art in this world. There's still, still beauty. People still fall in love. Children are still born. You know, you have to find a way to keep going. And so I think that the way to keep going is to find community and to find the place you belong and the family you belong with. Maybe not the people you were born to, but the found family that you discover and you make. Um, and I think that's a big part of all of my books is the idea of found family and uh, making a home wherever you are and doing your best to help however you can. Yeah. I mean, found family is something that I've experienced throughout my life. You know, some of my best friends, it just so happens that we kind of, stumbled across each other through chance and just because of the circumstances realizing like you know you were not long ago a stranger but now i i think of you as family and i think that notion that you kind of carry through from road out of winter into trashlands of found family and community and the relationships is is really beautiful and i love the intimacy that you bring to it because nothing is ever nothing is ever easy. Everybody knows that family is complicated. <laughs> and um I wanted to I wanted to kind of see what your perspective was in terms of why family and relationships are so important in your work and how your personal life has sort of impacted this aspect of your writing. Well, I think um like in my first book, um, there is a, a young mother. I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but there's a very young mother. And then you have uh, the main character who is, you know, a woman in her 20s and has sort of not really had the most supportive family or friends. You know, she can't really be who she is in this small rural town. And so she ends up kind of assembling her own found family and really becoming the matriarch of that family in a sense. You know, she takes care of people, even though no one took care of her. Um, and with Trashlands, you know, once I decided the main character was going to be a young mom and her son was not going to be with her, you know, he's he's lost for various reasons and she works hard on getting him back. But it was also important for me to show, you know, that motherhood is very hard and it's um it's very violent and it's frustrating and it's heaped solely upon women, much more so than men, um, the raising of children and, you know, what that meant for somebody who was kind of forced into it very young. So I did want to show, I mean, we mostly read of motherhood, this kind of like beautiful, lovely, um, it's so fulfilling narrative. And, and I wanted to show the narrative that, hey, it's complicated too. You know, it's really hard. Um, you kind of lose yourself. And you still need to be actualized as a person. So that was important to me that, you know, Coral has her family, but she also has who she is. She also has an artist and she needs to follow that too. That's important. The way you just phrased that in terms of losing yourself, but also needing to 
actualize yourself as a person. I mean, I have a I have a son who's a little over a year old and you know, seeing how much um energy especially at the beginning that he took from my wife and it's just like it is kind of this really brutal naturalistic thing where it's like a baby just like takes from the mother mm-hmm. because it's like that's the only person that can give them that sustenance and they don't have the capability to understand where else it comes from or anything like that and it's kind of like there's one scene in the book in Trashlands where she's describing her relationship with her son and the way that she kind of breaks down in the sense that it's like this child is like committing violent acts upon me almost and how much it's like seeping away from her but at the at the same time there's the dichotomy of love so it's you could you really captured the sense of of parenthood from the perspective of love and frustration and loss but also gain and you know for you personally as a mother what did it mean for you to kind of like delve into that motherhood relationship so much more deeply in Trashlands as opposed to Road Out of Winter? Yeah, I don't think I've ever written about it so much. So that was like, <laughs> you know, that was also, you know, like I said, with Road Out of Winter, I was like, well, you know, you really have an option when you write and you can just like skate away from things or you could just go all in. And at first, you know, in the first few drafts, I think I skated away and then, you know, I have a really great editor and she just was encouraging me to just go deep, you know, go all in and, um, you know, express those dark feelings and those complex feelings. I, Cause I think what it really comes down to is that parenthood, just like everything else is really complicated. It's not great or bad. It's both usually both days, you know, sometimes in the same hour, it's both wonderful and terrible. It switches so quickly. And I think that we're not prepared for that. And I don't think people tell us before we become parents, maybe especially mothers, you know, how hard it can be and how thankless it can be and how complicated it is, you know. And so I wanted to try to capture that vacillation between those feelings, you know, and how that's normal. And it's just part of it. Um, yeah, as, know, a, as, a, show that. as a as a stay at home dad. Um, you know, my wife, my wife has the, has the fortune to be working for a family company and, you know, through the pandemic, I had to close down my tattoo studio, but then we had a son. And so I decided like, I'm going to be the, the one that stays at home. I would rather he have a parent present. And this vacillation that you, that you talk about, it's like reading this book, it really just like hit me. I'm like, fucking hell it's hard to be a parent it's hard to raise a child it's hard to encapsulate everything that is involved with bringing another human being to the point where you feel like you can send them out into the world and they're even partially ready for what what might come their way um and i think the way that you portrayed that through coral and through her son you know there's a lot of there's a lot of darkness there but there's also light and towards the end of the book, I think you did a really good job of um, representing that ambiguity, I guess, because it's always, yeah. amb- it's always ambiguous. There's always lightness and darkness kind of commingling. Um, there's always love and frustration or anger commingling through this parental process. 
Yeah. And I don't think we talk enough about the darkness and the sadness as much as we do the love and, oh, it's so wonderful, you know, and I think that we're afraid to talk about that sometimes it's really hard and sometimes it's dark, you know, and sometimes we feel alone or are alone. Um, You know, I think there's still like shame in that. And I think that does a disservice to new parents, you know, because they don't know that it's normal to feel both things and to go through it even in the course of a day, like we talked about. Yeah. And how did you find a balance between, between this sort of um, darkness and, and lightness in the book, you know, sort of blending that with, with um, certain characters who, who have more of a feeling of, I guess, hopelessness or, or um, they're lost versus characters who tend to see things a bit more positively. How did you kind of strike that balance between light and dark? Well, I think one of the ways to do that is to, you know, the novel is told in alternating perspectives. Um, not every other chapter, but, you know, there's quite a few voices in the book and sort of alternating, like, whose turn is it now? You know, who needs to tell what side of the story? Is this a part where we need more humor? Um, Foxglove is one of my favorite characters. She's a dancer at Trashlands and she's very sarcastic and jaded, you know. Um, and she cusses a lot, which I love to write. Um, but she she's also loving. Like, she's incredibly kind. And she's able to find love even after trauma. You know, and so sometimes mixing up the chapters, like, is it going to be one of hers, you know, which is kind of like sassy and sarcastic? Is it going to be one of Coral's or Miami, which is more emotional, you know? Um, is it going to be Rattlesnake Master, who is like violent and... Gosh, sometimes it made me like ill to write his chapters, but I knew very, I had to get through very it. Very pervy. <laughs> I knew I had to get through his chapters. So I was like, oh, God, I got to revise him again. Um, but you know, it, it 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 it's fun as a writer too because you you're not just stuck in one person's head. You know, you get to see it from other sides too. And and when you were approaching this novel, how early on did you realize like? I think you, you mentioned it a bit earlier, how it started off as Coral's novel, more or less. But what was that, what was that transition like into writing multiple perspectives? And how did you approach that from, I guess, like a technical standpoint? I realized it pretty early on. I, I tried to write the book in the first few chapters. I was like, this doesn't feel right. I don't know why. It just doesn't feel right. And then I thought, well, I wonder what Trillium would think. Like, I wonder what he's like. I don't feel like I know him. And so I decided to go into his head. You know, and then I thought of Foxglove and I was like, oh, I really like her. I want to go in her head too. You know, I really like writing this tough as nails kind of woman. And so at first I was just writing the chapters as they came to me. You know, this is this person's turn. This is another person's turn. But then, you know, pretty quickly I realized I need to be a little more thoughtful about this, you know, who hasn't had a chance to speak or who do we really need to see the side of right now to understand the action that's happening or who's being left out of this story. And so this was a case where in revision, revision, I did have to make a lot of notes and I had like, you know, post-its on the wall and I was trying to alternate. Like I would go through, okay, this is just Miami storyline and this is Fox Club storyline and this is Coral. And so it required a lot of work for me on the on the back end. But that must have been, um, you know, because you're obviously working with editors and getting different um, different people's feedback. What was that like? Sort of like receiving the feedback about this multiple perspectives, and then did that um, 
did that sort of like fuel you to to keep pursuing it and keep um honing in on on what was working well, I've been lucky in that my editor for Trashlands and Road Out of Winter has um, not tried to gatekeep me or, you know, uh, tamp down some of the intensity. You know, I've being a journalist, I work with a lot of editors, and some editors, you know, they don't like your language or they try to insert other language, and and sometimes that can not be great. Not only can it dilute your voice, but it can dilute your story too. But my editor is not this way. You know, she's like go for it, be yourself. I'm just going to like guide you and help you get there, you know? And so she did tell me like, okay, we need to see more of Shanghai here, this, the child, or we need to know more about Miami here. I'm really missing like more of his voice there. So in revision, I did add a lot and switch some things around, um, which is always what happens. It's a great and kind of really annoying thing about revision is that the closer you get to your deadline, the more you're coming up with ideas, you know, and usually right before it's due, like it clicks, it locks into place and you're like, I got to get this down before it's due. Um, and it, it happens every time the pressure of a deadline, I think makes it happen. Yeah. And I mean, you're used to that just coming from the journalistic world that a deadline doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, everything's over. It's the end. It's like, right. no, a deadline actually, I don't know, from everything I've done journalistically, it's like deadlines actually create this really um, creative tension, I, mm. I, I call it. It's like the creative tension that kind of like forces you to just buckle up and just push towards it. And, you know, a lot of, like you said, a lot of the good ideas come towards the end because your mind is in overdrive. And you're just thinking, Absolutely. Like, oh my God, I have this perfect idea and I just want to get in there. Uh. And also like, this is the last chance for them to speak. This is the last chance, you know? I mean, I'm the kind of writer that I cannot, I still haven't read Road Out of Winter in its finished form. Like I kind of <laughs> glanced at it when it came in the mail, but then I can't because it's just too upsetting to me. You know, what if I think of something else or what if I made a mistake? And and also with Trashlands, even more than Road Out of Winter, with Trashlands, I really love these characters and I really grieve their loss in my life. I really miss them. Um, and it's hard, like not writing about their adventures every day. It's a loss for sure. Well, that's so sweet that you that you've connected with them on this level. and you know, you spent so much time invested in their world and creating their world and and putting them out into the real world for for people to to read and connect with. Um, what is it like for you once a book is out, you know, obviously we'll refer to Road Out of Winter in this case, and how you react to how other people react? Um, like, what is it like to to get that feedback and that response from people of like, oh, I connected with so-and-so or this story meant this to me? Well, it's still surprising to me. I mean, I just, I'm used to writing and, and you know, I, I don't know if anybody reads it or not. I'm just used to that. And I guess I'll always kind of feel that way. So to hear people say, like, I've gotten a lot of feedback that people really love Mr. Fall, you know? And I was like, oh, I love Mr. Fall too. And in fact, my agent, when he was reading a draft of it, he literally threatened to harm me if I hurt the character of Mr. Fall. It's like, you better not let anything happen to him. It's like, I want, um, he's the kind of person that I would, would have wanted as like my elementary school teacher. Yeah, same, you know? And there's so much danger in the book to have a character who 
is just a, a force of good, I think is, is really important. Um, but it still surprises me that people read it and like read the whole thing and liked it. Maybe like, it's still, it still surprises me every time to be honest. Yeah. But I think, I think it's probably, you know, something that you're going to get used to over time, but at the same time, it's like this heartwarming feeling to know that you've created something, put it out into the world and other people connect with it on some level. Yeah. Yeah. And just never know which character is going to be the one that people see themselves in or that they fall in love with or that they hate, you know, hating the characters important to like Rattlesnake Master. Um, but it's just great that you make something real for someone else. Yeah. And a lot of it's that comes feeling. through for sure. And, and a lot of that comes through your actual writing technique and your, your personal style, you know, and something that was, that was really impressive to me through Road Out of Winter and, um, and Trashlands. And I imagine some of it comes from your background with poetry, but your language and, and your writing style for me is very distinct and, and it's evocative of Hemingway's iceberg, iceberg theory of writing, mm -hmm. where a lot of the details and emotions and all that is a little bit more subdued or hidden in subtext and omission. And I just thought that was really fascinating. And so how, how did you come about like writing your novels this way? Um, what does it mean to you to kind of write in this manner where things can be more ambiguous and that's okay? Well, I think that, um, you know, like I said, I never studied fiction writing. So I think originally when I started writing fiction, I had a tendency to over-describe. And I think I still have a tendency to do that. I love and, and that comes from poetry. You know, I love imagery. I love describing things. I feel most comfortable in description and dialogue. Those are my favorite things, you know. As soon as people start talking, I feel better. So for me, I have to sort of walk that line between being clear and like describing too much. Um, and I feel like dialogue can do a lot of that. Dialogue can say a lot about what characters are feeling and also actions, you know. Are they looking away when they're talking to someone? Are they fiddling like coral? Are they fiddling with plastic from the river? You know, there's a scene where she does that. And I think that both actions and what you don't say can, can say a lot about a character's emotions too. Yeah, but this is something that um, perhaps it's your background coming from a childhood where you read the classics where um, there was, it's kind of a strange thing where I feel like there was a lot more um, literary experimentation you know, and then going into Angela Carter, Angela Carter, her, right. you know, I, I'm just thinking of this one novel called Heroes and Villains, mm. where the actual style and, and technique of the novel is so um, unordinary, you know, like the punctuation, like the omission of certain, uh, of certain grammar and stuff like that. And I think it, I think it helps a lot to, to distinguish you as like this is Alison Stein's writing you know in terms of you know there is a lot of description in terms of the environment in terms of the trash lands uh, strip club in terms of the ambiance and atmosphere of any given place in terms of the physical description of characters too but the relationships come out um, from my perspective as a reader to be more uh, complex and nuanced and interesting when it feels more like real life you know we've talked a lot about parenthood and how parenthood is so um 
complicated and relationships are complicated. And a lot of that is because things go left unsaid. Right. And even though this, this even more so than Ronan and Winter Trashlands is set in this like wild world, it's still about people and it's still about people falling in love and falling out of love and having children and struggling with parenthood and struggling to survive and have enough money and wanting more for their lives. I mean, those are like simple human desires that no matter where we are, we're feeling them. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to take a little bit of a left turn um, just to focus on where you grew up. And I'm very curious. So now you've had two novels that are set in the Appalachian region, um, <clears throat> excuse me, starting in Ohio in the case of Road Out of Winter and migrating into different parts of that, that area. But in Trashlands, it's like you focused on that and, and you stayed there. So what is, what is it about your childhood and the Appalachian region and Ohio that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, um, was so important to you that you felt you wanted to write not only one novel about it, but two novels and perhaps another? Well, I mean, we can't help what what calls to us, you know, we can't help what our compulsions are and our writerly obsessions, I guess. And I, I imagine like a lot of people who grew up in small rural towns, I wanted to get out. Like I couldn't wait to get out. Um, I wanted to go to NYU for college. My parents would not let me go to NYU, but, um, you know, I just wanted to go somewhere exciting. And I did. I lived in New York City briefly. I lived in San Francisco for a while. I lived in Washington, D.C., but I ended up coming home. (laughs) You know, I just couldn't wait to come home. And it was important to me that my son was born there, you know, that my son was born in Appalachia. Um, He he always will have that. He'll always have that community and that that groundedness, you know, in a small rural place, you know? Um, so I don't know, I guess like things imprint on us and my childhood really imprinted on me and, you know, having a child, the other side of the coin, being a young mom in Appalachia really imprinted on me too. And, um, especially because we see so much, I think in popular media about, Ohio and the Midwest and rural America and Appalachia, I think especially maybe, you know, since the presidential election of 2016. And so much of that is wrong. Like so much of that is just stereotypes and one person's experience and just painted in a broad brush. And if there's one thing I know for sure, it's that everyone has a different experience. And as much as I love Ohio and it was a good place to be a mom, even a single mom, it's not that for everyone. You know, everyone has a different lived experience. And so just trying to bring to light my own, but doing it in a way through fiction, that's maybe a little bit more entertaining or maybe easier to think about is something that's always interested me. Yeah. And I mean, what you just said about, um, the Appalachian region being a bit misrepresented, I think there's just not enough, um, not enough stories coming out of that region, not enough stories that are are being told to give a sense of like an individual community level. You know, there's just a lot of, uh, like you said, just bullshit stereotypes and, and people jumping on a, on a political bias and, and making, um, assumptions about an entire region of the United States. And I was recently while, while reviewing the book, I was, I was 
looking at photos of maps to see sort of like where the Appalachian region starts and ends and all that kind of stuff. And it's massive. It is huge. You know, it covers a whole yeah. swath um, of the United States from top to bottom, pretty much. And that was surprising to me. And it's like, how can you generalize anybody within such a giant piece of land? You know, it's crazy. And cities and countries and the country is so different from each other, you know. Um, and also, I think one of the ways that it's mis misrepresented too, I mean, you asked me earlier about optimism, is I think it's often misrepresented in that it's just hopeless. It's just, you know, there's poverty and there's drug abuse and it's just misery. And I, I want to not shy away from that, but I also want to talk about joy, you know, and that you can be, you can live below the poverty line as I have and be happy and you can still have parties for your friends and you can still have presents for your children and you can still find joy in small things, you know, in simple things. Um, that's a part of life too. And I wanted to show that. Yeah. And I think that's a very optimistic note to look towards the future and, and ask you what what the future holds for you as a writer. Um, you know, perhaps you have some more poetry collections coming out or if you already have some more novels in the works. I actually don't at the moment, which is frightening for me because when Road Out of Winter came out, Trashlands was already like, you know, under contract, I think. So I was like, I know what I'm doing next. But now I don't know what I'm doing next. And it's a little frightening. But I do have a lot of thoughts. I mean, I have a, a few novels that I've been working on in various rough stages. And then I've also been thinking that maybe I should take this time and and kind of dip a toe into something I've always been interested in, kind of going back to my roots as a playwright and it, maybe try to do some TV writing or think about like maybe writing some scripts again. So so we'll see, we'll see where I go, but I think I might like to try that. Cool. Fantastic. I think that'd be really interesting to, yeah. you know, because I, I have seen a lot of now that we're, I guess you could say we're in a more golden age of television. Um where there is a lot more attention put into the actual quality of the writing that appears on screen um, and TV, especially because there are like writer's rooms and things like that. It's a more collaborative situation. Um, I've seen a lot of, of fiction writers and sci-fi fantasy writers that are crossing over into that space. And I think it's really cool. Well, like I said, I always feel better once I start writing dialogue. So maybe I need to write some more dialogue. <laughs> You'll have plenty of dialogue and screenwriting. <laughs> cool. Well, um, what are you currently reading or watching or listening to? Um, well, it's October. So in October, I mean, I'll watch horror movies anytime, but I love to watch horror movies in October. Um, so I've been introducing my son to some of the classics and I've kind of been rewatching them to make sure they're not like too scary for him. Um, so I'm always watching horror movies. And as far as reading, I just, um, I just read Alice Hoffman's new book. It's the latest in the Practical Magic series. And that made me remember how much I love those books. Um, I love those witches. And so I think I might, I think I might go back to some of those earlier books and maybe do some more, some more witchcraft re reading, I think. Right on. You're having a very spooky October as is fitting. Yes. The best kind. What are, what are some uh, horror movies that you recommend for people? Oh gosh. Um, my favorite horror movie is a movie called Mandy that came out a few years ago. That's what, that's what Nicolas Cage, the, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like kind of a heavy metal sort of 
revenge cult fantasy opera. I mean, it's it's very intense and very violent, but it's just right up my alley. I'm actually writing about it for tour.com. So I'm very excited about that. Um, that's a favorite of mine. Kind of on the other end, I like a recent movie called It Follows, which is not gory at all, um, but it's, it's a very a feminist horror movie. Um, and, you know, I, I like the classics too. I like uh, Dawn of the Dead. I love both the original and the remake. I love a good zombie movie. Um, my son got to watch Shaun of the Dead recently and was a huge fan. So, so anything with a zombie and I'm, I'm there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Allison. Um, if you could let our listeners and, and, and uh, viewers know where they can find you on uh, social media, as well as your website, where they can find your work. Yeah, I'm. Uh, my website is just alisonstein.com. Both my first and last name are spelled a little differently. It's Allison with one L and S-T-I-N-E. Um, I'm at Twitter, uh, just just my name, at Allison Stein. And I'm on Instagram at Allie Stein Writes. And um, yeah, you can find my books where books are sold and in the library. And go check out Trashlands. It's out today. It's very, <laughs> very you. good. Yeah. You can also read my review on fanfiatic.com. Um, yeah. Just like simply put, I really liked it. So go check it Thank out. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. And there we have it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Allison Stein. Make sure to check out my reviews of both Road Out of Winter and Trashlands over on fanfiatic.com, and I'll have links to those in the show notes. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice, and share us with your friends. It helps a lot, and we greatly appreciate it. You can follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram at SFFAddictsPod for updates and more, or shoot us an email at SFFAddictsPod at gmail.com. You can also follow me, Adrian M. Gibson, on Twitter or Instagram at Adrian M. Gibson. SFF Addicts is part of fanfiatic.com, so make sure to check us out there for the latest in book reviews, essays, and all things sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the full episode archive for the podcast. All music comes courtesy of the talented Astronauts. Check them out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash S-T-R-O-N-O-Z. All links for the episode are also available in the show notes. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.